Um, right. If you are a note taker, go grab your notebook. If you have got your Bibles, go grab them. We're back in Luke, everybody. Uh, finally, we're going to use what is this beautiful image once again. How we've missed it uh, because we paid for it. So uh, I'm, I'm so excited to be back in Luke. It's going to be an exciting journey as we continue on this book. Hopefully the Bible Project video that we showed at the beginning was helpful to kind of give you a bit of a recap of where we've just been in the last stint of it, but also what we have got to come. Uh, so I'm just going to go through a little bit of a very small recap to just help us with that. And then we're going to dive straight into the passage that we're looking at today. Um, so where have we been? Well, we've gone through Luke and we've kind of looked at this idea of the upside down kingdom with clarity that Jesus is going to bring this new exodus that started and was announced in Luke 9. Uh, in Luke 9, around the end of it, around verse 51, we then started on this journey. By the way, we started on this journey in 2019. So we have been on this journey for some time now um, and guarantee you we're going to be on it for a little bit longer. But as we've been on this journey, Jesus has been doing different things. He's been mentioning about going to Jerusalem, which is part of what his journey is. He's been sending disciples, sending others. He sent like the 70 uh, to as well. He has helped make clear what a kingdom mission mindset actually looked like. Hint, hint to our value series of why that's incorporated into it. And we're joining now on this probably final stint-ish um, up to chapter 18, um, or chapter 9, sorry, on, on this journey where we're coming to a bit of action. And we often see this on this journey. We kind of got bit of action, lot of teaching, bit of action, lot of teaching. And teaching comes in, in a bit of de uh, debates and those kind of things. But it's often how Jesus has kind of taken us on this journey of having some action and then having some teaching. So we've come on to the next bit of action. And in fact, we've come on to the fourth out of five miracles that we see along this journey. Um, we had uh, in Luke 11, when Jesus cast out demons out of a mute. We had in Luke 13, the healing of a woman with a disabling spirit. And we had in Luke 14, the healing of a man with dropsy, uh, which is the, the beautiful uh, fluid in the body tissue. And now we've come again to another healing. But what's interesting is every time healing has occurred, Jesus has always brought a teaching from that. Classic Jesus, using every opportunity he can to teach us what this upside down kingdom looks like. So in Luke 11, he described about um, being part of the kingdom of God is engaging in spiritual battle against the enemy. In Luke 13, he, he, uh, the lesson we've been taught that being part of the kingdom of God is serving um, out of love, despite our own cultural context and relationships and despite our own desires. And Luke 14, was describing being part of the kingdom of God is submission to the king above the expectation and criticism of others. So don't go back, go have a look, go confirm the things that I'm saying. But as we come to the next bit where he talks about healing, Jesus is once again using a scenario to teach us a bit more of what the kingdom of God looks like. And if you are a note taker, um, here's where I'm going to be ending up. Um, the kingdom of God, being part of the kingdom of God, is being a joyful, thankful worshipper who desires to see and celebrate in the glory of God. What a wonderful thing it is that part of our values that we've gone through as a reset series has been also tackling into that as well. So we're going to be understanding this a little bit better. Uh, we're going to be going it through uh, kind of verse-ish by verse, bit by bit. 
to just understand the context. And as we get to the, the final bit and get to the, what is essentially the primary point, hopefully you can see where we're taking on this journey. So let me just pray before we take this journey together this morning. Uh, let's just see what God wants to do. So Heavenly Father, come and have your way. Father, let me not be seen, but let your word be preached. Let your word be heard. And I pray that as we understand this and digest this together this morning, you would be glorified in what we're doing. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Let us begin our journey with Luke 17, verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Okay, so we are introduced to these new characters of the story, these lepers. Now, lepers, they, they were not allowed to mingle. There's multiple kind of guidelines in the Old Testament that obviously was being upheld both in Leviticus and in Numbers. The fact that if you had leprosy, that outweighed any other cultural clash or any other cultural um, kind of difficulties or conflicts. And therefore, if you were a leper, that kind of took priority and you just clumped together and chucked outside the city. You were kind of just said, well, despite all of this, you're just all going to go. And that was the idea that it was a, a way of emulating the sinful nature by using this disease um, coming from kings, which we'll, we'll look at in a bit, um, about actually how the fact that there's a separation. So they were casted out. Well, obviously, religious people took it to another level and physically did that. And so they, as uh, lepers, would be calling out to people consistently. But what's interesting to note is they called out to Jesus by name. That, that, this is the interesting bit. Normally they'll be calling out to arms or money or anything, food, those kind of things. But they knew who Jesus was and they called him by name and they called him master. They probably would have heard the stories about Jesus of what he has already been doing on the journey. They would have recognized him by, by what he has been doing, by who was around him and therefore realized, in fact, instead of calling arms or calling for food, they could call for pity. They could call for Jesus to impart something into him. We need to pause on that for a second for our own context. Jesus is known by our society as well. If I was to ask different people in the street who Jesus was, I would probably get an answer for each one. It might not be a correct answer, but they would know of the name Jesus. They would know um, of him, even if they don't know him. The surface level knowledge may help us recognize Jesus, but knowing Jesus is a separate thing altogether. And we're gonna see this entity being played out here. We're gonna see this concept that they know of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And when that knowledge of knowing Jesus comes in, there is a great and wonderful thing that occurs. So I suppose uh, there's a few side points here that I'm calling out. Side point number one, do you know of Jesus or do you know Jesus? Many people know of Jesus, but actually those who belong to him know Jesus. Where do you stand with that? And it's important as well, as we walk in our daily life, we're not acting in a way that is knowing of Jesus, but we are knowing Jesus, deepening our walk by deepening our faith in that kind of way. Okay, so we've introduced ourselves to the lepers. Let's pursue down this journey. 
When he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they, were, as they went, they were cleansed. This is a very interesting verse uh, for many reasons. Number one, it said, when he saw them. Now, this is a very small point probably to make. It's, it's a kind of small uh, detail, but it's significant. Because actually in the time, the Jewish law um, would have said that you should be ignoring lepers. You should be ignoring those who were cast out as outcasts out of the city walls, kind of just walking away from them. You shouldn't be acknowledging them. And I don't know about you, but in our human nature, when we see people, um, either homeless people or broken people in the street and those kind of things, what's your human nature goes to? And there's a small part of human nature, sadly, which is to kind of turn away, to see, to see them as an invisible, which is awful and terrible, but it's something that we need to call out. And so in the Jewish culture at that time, these people were seen as insignificant. They would be inclined to ignore the sick or dying people that would be cast out because suffering and death makes us uncomfortable. But we can draw strength knowing that there is someone who sees us. Jesus didn't turn a blind eye to these people, to these lepers, to those who were in need. He saw them. Small side point, how are we in seeing people in the same way? How are we seeing people who are broken, who are hurt, who are in pain, who are suffering? How do we see them? Do we turn a blind eye and go patronizingly? They're there, I hope you get better. Or do we see them and do something about it? Do we serve with prayer? Do we serve with things that we have to help and to support and to love those who are in suffering and those who are poor and those who are in need? Do we see those that society see as invisible? Anyway, Jesus in this response, he doesn't ask them to do something special. He asked them actually to follow what was culturally there, but commanded it. He first said, God, as a command for them to walk, show yourselves to the priests. It was a command uh, for him to kind of take that on. It's a hinting similar to the same of what Elisha in two kings, um, as a messenger, Elijah's messenger, stated to the Syrian general Naaman. The, the Syrian general Naaman, uh, he went to Elisha and all he heard back was, go wash yourself seven times in the river. And Naaman got upset. He got angry and be like, you're going to be a, like this, this God fellow. You're not going to bang a staff or something or like, do something to try and heal me. And it was actually Naaman's servants that had to say to Naaman, no, what a blessing, just go wash yourself. And so when Naaman washed himself seven times, leprosy just went, it was healed. Elisha didn't have to lay hands or anything like that. He just said, go, go do that. Even through a messenger, go, go wash yourself. And in that way, we're seeing a similar um, kind of way that Jesus is commanding them to just go show themselves to the priest. Which, as I said, in Leviticus 13, 14, when it details about um, leprosy and signs to look out for leprosy, uh, it details the authority that priest would have had to have said if someone was healed or not. Bit of a weird one, not going to doctors, but I digress. It's, it was the priest's role to say whether there was someone was cleansed or not. And if someone was cleansed from leprosy, they would be then brought back into society. But let's not kind of... Uh, 
take this for disregard. Let's not just uh, work away from leprosy itself. Leprosy could take years. Some people died consistently from leprosy. There were accounts where leprosy could be there for 20 years. So for 20 years, people would be outcast out of the city walls. If they were a man, they would have to separate from their, their wife and children and be completely alone with the other men. So completely outcasted. And so it was up for the priest to say, you're healed, and therefore you're brought back into society. There's a small point here that we recognize Jesus' commands to the lepers to do something that seems too normal to be true. But they went and they realized that they were cleansed. And actually the idea of that they were cleansed means that they were probably cleansed on their journey. They, if they were stated that they were cleansed, it means whilst they were walking, they were healed from leprosy. But they followed the commands that Jesus said to them. Small point. How are we recognizing the call and command of God and taking it seriously? The call to make disciples, to be sent, the command to submit and continue to strive for sanctification. How are we in listening to that? How are we in doing things that might seem normal, but is following the, following the call of God? Let us not be a people that are looking for that big sign of thunder and lightning and this incredible prophetic word or this vision or things. Let us be looking at the word of God to remember the call and command of our lives to make disciples. How are we in doing that? To submit to God. How are we in doing that? The things we covered in the Reset series. We need to make sure that we are actively seeking to deepen our walk with Christ and continually developing a heart of service so we can be workers in the kingdom of God. Again, calling out stuff we looked at in the Reset series. It's wonderful that the Reset series is linked and tied into the various things we're looking at as we continue our journey in Luke. It's really important that as we went through that, it's not for self-reflection alone for us to kind of be very introverted looking, but as we reflect and dive deeper to see what God's calling out in us, we're able to live further for the king. So let us not just move away from the series we've just gone through, but let's remind ourselves that we are called to be like that, to become more beloved children as part of the kingdom of God. Okay, so these verses have kind of been context setting. Now we're going to see what happened after they were cleansed. They were cleansed. What's up now? Let's go to the next two verses. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. It's incredible. When this leper saw he was cured, he didn't look at the result itself but realize the effect of it. He didn't just kind of look at his skin and be like, I'm healed. He recognized the effect that did it. His expression of praise poured out like an explosive fountain that couldn't be contained. So he had to go search and find the one who healed him. The realization of what Jesus had done through healing this destructive disease meant the restoration had come for this man to be reconciled into society. And society had rejected him because he was a Samaritan. 
I, I love the fact that Luke kind of adds this on, like bolted on the end saying, and he was a Samaritan. But it's so important to recognize this as we'll see in Jesus' response as well, because society had rejected him, but Jesus had not. Jesus had healed him. He had reconciled him back in. He had brought him back to living with his family who he had been separated from. And he had been brought back to have utter freedom from the restrictions of life that were governed over him. Jesus had healed his physical healing, but has restored his life. The physical healing meant that in society's eyes, he had been saved from this destructive disease that would destined him to death. Therefore, as he saw the reality of this, his only response was one thing. Joyful praise and finding the one who made it possible, which sets off a chain of events in this man's life. The seeing of healing of an earthly condition catalyzes the healing of the spiritual and more damaging condition. And we're going to come on to that in a bit, which is just tremendous. But what's also interesting is though this might not might be distant memory if you look just at the passage just before this in verses 7 to 10 it talks about gratitude never being owed to the slave but owed to the master gratitude is owned to god and not to ourselves god made it possible not ourselves god healed the leper it wasn't the leper having the faith to take the journey it was god who brought the healing therefore gratitude is owned to him Faithfulness and gratitude is the basic requirement of faith as we recognize and realize what Jesus has done. It's a phenomenal thing. And so this leper falls to his face at Jesus' feet. The absolute physical sign of subjugation and of self and submission to God to fully exemplify the essence of faith. I love Ian greatly, but I've never fallen on my face in front of him. And the only reason, like the, the reason why is because that is for someone I'm submitting completely to. And that is my king. That is God, eternal. And so this leper, Samaritan, who has not grown up in the Jewish culture, not had any of those privilege, see what Jesus has done. And the only thing he can do is run back after Jesus, thank him with a loud voice, praise him and fall at his feet. This utter awestruck moment as this man is processing the change of life comes as he sees Jesus and he prays him. It's not just uttering uh, like a little uh, message or giving Jesus a pat on the back and be like, all right, yeah, thanks you, mate. I appreciate this. It's the utter reverence of God of recognizing what Jesus has done. Uh, common, uh, theologian David E. Garden says, the language of seeing, returning, and praising slash glorifying God recalls the response of the shepherds after the angelic announcement of Christ's birth and their visit to the manger. They returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. I think there was great wisdom, and I couldn't nick that and say that it was myself doing it. So I had to, I had to say that it was David Garner who said it. But it's interesting as well, if we refer back to that moment, that the shepherds returned, seeing, 
glorifying and praising God, they were the low life of society that were brought into a precious moment. And you've got, again, someone who is an outcast of society in general that recognises and sees what God has done and returns. And his absolute reaction is to glorify God. There is such spiritual clarity that can come when we look at physical workings. Healings is to point us to God. It's so important we realise this. When it comes to God moving in us, all of it is to point us to him. Now, this reaction should stump us. It should take our breath away. It should put a smile on our faces and complete the joy in us, as Philippians 2 verse 2 says. But it should leave us a taste in our mouths that shouldn't really fit. Because as we think, this is amazing that this, this leper is returning like this. But hold up. What about the other nine? What are they up to? Well, Jesus commentates on this as well, which brings us to probably what is the root point of the passage. So we're going to take a bit of the rest of time looking at this. Jesus asked, were there not all ten cleansed? Where, where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus points out the fact that the other lepers weren't there. And the assumption by the fact that he calls this one a foreigner um, it is implication that the other ones were Jewish. Now, Jesus, again, is not degrading, commenting that this one is a foreigner, but is commenting on the society view of the Samaritans. They were seen, as I mentioned, by as outcasts, as aliens to the land, i.e. foreigners. So Jesus' comment is to really call out the fact that those who are part of the culture, those who know the culture, who know the society, that understand being brought back into the society, are the ones who inherently outcasted Jesus. He's saying that the one who is not part of this culture at all is running back and coming to thank Jesus, but the other Jewish lepers are not. The Jewish lepers go to the priest to inspect him, confirm the healing because it says they were cleansed, and after fulfilling their religious requirement, they then walk off. They then leave. They don't come back. The other lepers got what they wanted. They, and so once they got what they wanted, Jesus paled into insignificance. He is a temporary medicine to them. He is a tool that suited their need for once. And once it was completed, he was then pushed to the side. It's like treating our lives at times with medicine. So I don't know about you, but I, I have a medicine box. This is often at the moment for um, my blood thinners after my surgery, for paracetamol, that kind of stuff. And it's like this. It's like we kind of dip into the medicine box and go, oh, I've got a headache. Let me just have paracetamol. Oh, that's good. Push it aside. Oh, I've got a bit of pain or a bit of bruising. Let me have some ibuprofen or let me have some cowpaw if you're younger or antibiotics or whatever. Once I've had it, thank you very much. Push it aside. It's treating Jesus as if it's just a temporary box that we kind of call on to and be like, oh, I just need a little bit of Jesus to help me at this scenario. Mm, thank you, Jesus. Well, off you go and put you on the shelf again in the cupboard. That's what they treat him like, as a temporary medicine box that suits their needs. And once their needs are met, 
Jesus can go away. We need to be cautious about this. We need to be really cautious about this in terms of this way. The point is being made that the significance of the temple's rituals that were being followed at the time pales into nothingness compared to the thanks of God and the movement of Jesus has over him. The movement of Jesus and the healing that comes is so much more important. And the fact that the alienated Samaritan carries this out by going the extra mile and finding Jesus shows how religious behavior has sipped in into that culture at the time. Shows why Jesus is coming to bring a new exodus. Shows why Jesus had to be there. It shows that fact. Charles Spurgeon um, says when he preached about this passage, saying, external religious exercises are enough and common enough. But the internal matter, the drawing out of the heart in thankful love, how scarce a thing it is. Nine obey ritual where only one praises the Lord. Jesus' question was rhetorical not expecting an answer, but making a stinging observation that the other nine had missed their opportunity. This should be horrifically shocking to us, especially when looking at the context of the lepers. The others, being in a Jewish culture, continued having a religious mind. In fact, there's an element of where they're being entitled to do their response. Not at all considering going back. And, I, and though this never happens, I bet you if their mindset, with how their mindset was, if they saw Jesus, they would have given a polite nod, being like, thank you, mate. Thank you for that. I appreciate your favor. I'll see you later. So not bothered about what Jesus has actually done. But the Samaritan, treated in the same way in terms of the healing, saw the fact of what Jesus has done by not rejecting him, but has been rejected by everyone else, but not looking over him, that though he had been looked over by everyone else. Therefore, the leprosy would have rejected him completely from everywhere, and Jesus brought an end to that. The restoration had been brought to all of them. They were all cleansed, but the nine went back to their entitled ways, but only one, the thankful Samaritan, saw what God has done. Here's the warning from this story. Where do you place yourself? Okay, so you're not Jesus, because we never are, though there's lessons that we can take from this story about how Jesus acts. You're not the disciples, because they're not really in the story, and they're just watchers of it. So you're either in two categories. You're either in the category of the nine, or you're in the category of the one. Which are you? Throughout this as well, I've been using language, I hope you noticed, that hinted to the fact of what Jesus is about to do on the cross and what he has done eternally for us. If God has healed something so much more damaging than leprosy, i.e. sin, which is a disease that would separate me from eternal rejoicing and eternal um, reconciliation with God, how much more should we be celebrating than the Samaritan leper for what God has done in our lives? Or 
Are we treating Christianity as an entitled thing that we deserve God to move in our lives for that way? Yes, we believe in once saved, always saved, completely, wholly, and it's a wonderful thing that we believe in that theology. However, the response to Jesus for what he has done is so important and needs to be called out. Jesus desires to be glorified through intimate relationship with him. What a wonderful thing it is. Jesus is not a helpline to be treated as something we store away in the cupboard, we store away on our phone and just dial in whenever we need him or just take the medicine and take it when we need it. But once we're done and once we've dealt with Jesus, we then put him away or we turn off the phone call. Jesus is not something we call on just when we require it, but he is a God who wants relationship with us every single day in every single moment. How do you treat Jesus in your daily life? When we understand the isolation that sin produces, we understand the freedom that salvation brings. And therefore, our response has to only be for the glory of God. Let's just look at two verses just to call this out as I come into last. 2 Corinthians 4.15, for it is all for your sake that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In Psalm 9, 1-2, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will count all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Lovingly, I say this, my beloved family, do you respond like this or do you respond in a nonchalant and slightly tinged entitled way? It's why one of the value headings is empowered by the Holy Spirit with a clear tagline to actively enjoying the glory and joy of God. We cannot let our culture implications or even our society standards stop us from seeking after the glory of God and allow the joy of God to take over our hearts. Don't forget the place that you've come from. Don't let the privilege of society or being part of an English culture taint your heart and mind, letting entitlement to seep in. Do not let the privileged background that we might come from allow entitlement to seep in. You didn't deserve grace. You didn't deserve God's love. You didn't deserve God's power. You didn't deserve blessings. You weren't entitled to God's riches. You weren't entitled to God's salvation and healing power. You weren't entitled to the Holy Spirit working through you. And you weren't entitled to living God for all eternity. But God, being rich in mercy and being full of grace, has lavished his love upon us, as Ephesians 2 says. He has poured mercy over us. He has poured love over us. He has poured great over us. And he has poured joy over us, not because we deserve it or not because we're entitled to it, but because he is good. So because of that, what is your response? I recognize that this is often a message I talk about, 
But hear me clearly. I say this not as a token Indian in an English culture, but as a brother in Christ, recognizing the love of God is being poured out over us and understanding the mercy of it more and more. I say this not as an extrovert, that being loud is easy for me, but as a worshiper who doesn't want to let the stones have the opportunity for saying something that I've been blessed with. I say this not as a privileged male that has a microphone, but as a child of God who is learning the glorious grace of adoption and doesn't want to stop learning about it. I say this not as an employee in a sustainable job, but as a servant to the kingdom with a joyful king who has paved the way for me with great delight so I may work for him. I say this not as a tired man of lockdown, worn out from the restrictions that it brings, but as a child who is wanting to find internal recharging and refreshing in the only fountain of life that I can find true joyful rest in. And I say this not as a youth leader that is always energetic, but as a disciple who wants the joy of the Lord to be captured by all who love him. How should we respond to this? Just quickly, of being aware of time, I believe there's two responses that are called out by looking at the thankful Samaritan letter. One which is physical and one which is metaphoric physical how are you using your physical attributes and talents to glorify god and be joyfully thankful when it comes to worship what do you do yes 1 samuel 16 7 says for the lord sees not as man sees man looks out on the outward appearance for the lord looks on the heart however are you using that as an excuse to not do anything which means your heart's in the wrong place when it comes to worship what are you doing with your heart, with your soul, but also your body? When it comes to praise, how are you doing it? Are you just having a pat on the back of Jesus being like, thanks, mate. Here's a high five for what you've done. Or are you seeing what Jesus has done and you're praising him with a loud voice? Whatever loud means to you. Loud doesn't need to be loud. If, if you aren't loud in that way, loud can be different. But are you praising him with a loud voice? every day what are your moments to fall in front of Jesus you might remember last year we looked at Mary moments there's a day from Luke 10 of just sitting at Jesus feet do you do that it's been a year do you do that how do you th give thanks to God every day and as part of your every day because every day belongs to him how are you glorifying God in every part, even if stuff doesn't go your way, even if you are rejected and told no by the world or not being asked to do certain things? How are you still using every part of you to glorify God, knowing his hand is in control? And metaphorically, how are you having the same like mind as the thankful Samaritan and reminding yourself how the glory of God has altered your life and your destiny forever when it comes to gratitude does it seep into every part of your life or do you just compartmentalize that for one little bit are you uh, are you thankful in all that you do are you joyful in all that you do is this something that you pray for the holy spirit to grow in you and you if you're not i urge you to do so do you live with a mindset of joy how do you treat god on your daily walk 
we as Christians should be the most joyful people on the earth because it comes from him. How joyful are you? When it comes to the first thing uh, that you think of when you wake up, when it comes to the last thing that you go to bed with, what's on your mind? What do you do? I'm not asking for religious behavior that we wake up and we straight away pray, but do you have the mindset to give it to God? When it comes to church, where do you stand in terms of pushing forward the kingdom of God? Do you enjoy having your joy completed by others, as Philippians 2, 2 says? Or is your life focused on success and your own self-ambition and self-promotion? And therefore, when it comes to the kingdom, your eye is not on it, but it's on yourself. Let us be a people that is thankful, that enjoys gratitude, that is joyful children of God, that recognizes what he has done and lets that seep into the fibers of our every single day and our very character and nature. So what we're gonna do after this, I hope and I believe, is we, I can't preach a message like this without giving space for us to respond in worship. And so we're gonna go back to Ad leading us in a reflective song to worship. I urge you that during this time, worship with you. I encourage you to do so. Hear the words that I'm saying. Let me pray and then we're gonna enjoy a time of worship before we close, close for today. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be like the thankful Samaritan, recognizing there where we've come from and never letting that cause us to be entitled and never letting that slip for us to continue to enjoy the glory of God. God, we did not deserve anything. And yet, Jesus, you chose to die on the cross for us. And we are eternally thankful and joyful. Even if we've come to that realization um, many, many years ago or only recently, we are all in the same boat, the same place of wanting to come before you as joyful family of God who want to rejoice in you. So as we worship right now, Holy Spirit, come and see our offering to you as beloved children who just want to enjoy their God to glorify you freshly today, we pray. In your holy name, amen.